2: he konae purangi tēnei nā te nei na irirangi o now, mihi nui I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Hour Changing World podcast from RNZ. 1.28 trillion US dollars. I'll just say that again. 1.28 trillion US dollars. That's the staggering figure given in a recent Nature paper for the cost of invasive species in the past 50 years. That's a worldwide figure for the price we all pay when species end up, either deliberately or accidentally, in places they haven't previously occupied. The researchers say that the number of biological invasions and the associated costs are rising rapidly. And we only have to look at New Zealand to see that in action. In the past couple of decades we've had fruit flies, kiwi fruit PSA, myrtle rust. There's the looming threat of brown marmorated stink bugs. The list goes on. Also on that list is Cody dieback. And in tonight's Dive into the Archives, we are going back to 2013 to hear part of a special feature I recorded in West Auckland on Cody dieback disease.
3: It's a species of phytophthora, which from Greek is phytoplant thora, destroyer. It's a plant destroyer. At
0: least half the trees are affected and dead or dying.
2: They're amazing trees that can grow to hundreds and hundreds of years old and to see them dying from a disease is pretty devastating. Five years ago, a new plant disease was identified in New Zealand. Phytophthora taxon on agathis, also known as PTA or kauri dieback disease, which infects and kills our giant native kauri trees. The effects of kauri dieback disease were first noticed 40 years ago, but in the last decade the disease has been spreading alarmingly and many thousands of kauri trees are now infected and dying. I'm Alison Balance and in this Our Changing World special feature I'm heading to West Auckland and the Waitakere Ranges whose kauri trees have been particularly hard hit to find out more. My first port of call is Colin McCann House in Titarangi, where Diane Blomfield and Chris McBride have offered to share their experience with the disease. Lovely bush here, huge cabbage trees, lots of kari, but these kari are not very happy kari, are they?
4: No, there's there's about twenty nine. Well, there were twenty nine kari here, uh, but the the majority of these trees have succumbed to the disease uh, in some form or another and the long-term prognosis is not great because of that. We've had two um, quite large trees come out. They would have been, I think we estimated them, somewhere between 120 and 150 years old.
2: Can we go and have a look at where those trees were? Yeah, sure. Dropping down the steep hillside? Yeah.
5: And the child in the background is the baby of the current residence, Ruth and Cannon.
2: So there's the stump where it was felled. How long ago was it felled?
4: 29th of January 2013 uh, the filling took place. There was a ceremony done here uh, just to acknowledge the significance of these trees. I mean the, the taonga trees not only in terms of Māori but also in terms of their their presence in art and that's a really important factor here. We're, we're in the home area of one of the most important uh, contemporary artists in Aotearoa and We need to acknowledge those trees, and it was a sad occasion.
5: I thought I'd bring our attention to the tree that is lying on the ground. It was cut in pieces and left here. The idea is that if you remove the diseased trunk, you'll be spreading the spores as as you travel. So it's lying here, quite corpse-like, a daily reminder of, of the tragedy, really.
2: And it was taken down for safety reasons, I assume? It would
5: have fallen in due course, exactly. It was completely dead. There were two. The other one, you, you can't see it, but what you can see is a gap in the canopy.
4: When I first started here just over three years ago, that tree was alive. But it wasn't looking that well, and it died within um, eighteen months of of my starting there and it, and that was that was really quite spectacular. it's quite quite amazing to look out and see that landscape and just how it has changed. and you can imagine that this is a possibility uh, for further trees to come out here. and one of the things that saddens me about uh, this process is is that at some point it may be that we only see Kauri and art, we only see it in Colin's work or in Hefe's work or in Diane's ancestor, um, Charles Blomfield's work.
5: Out of the gathering, it has raised awareness and there's some great anecdotal stories of people collecting seeds now for the day of the Kauri apocalypse, you know. So um, people are, are putting their hands up and doing something about protecting these
2: trees. So what exactly is Kauri dieback disease and what causes it? Nick Wiper is Principal Advisor Biosecurity at the Auckland Council.
3: It's a terrible thing. It's a soil borne microorganism, so that's another barrier to us. It's, it's microscopic, we can't see it. It's a species of Phytophthora, which from Greek is phytoplant thora Destroyer. It's a plant destroyer. It's not a fungus, it's a chromist, it's a water mould, so it's a different kingdom than the fungi or the bacteria. It's from a group of organisms that are well-known plant pathogens and, in fact, began the discipline of plant pathology through the Irish potato famine, which Phytophthora and Festans are relative, um, caused the um, potato blight. So that was almost the disease that started the whole interest in plant pathology due to the mass starvation and immigration that a soil-borne plant pathogen enacted on the whole Potato agriculture of Europe, so it has a well known impact. And for horticulturalists, orchardists, farmers, they've been nurserymen, they've been fighting these sorts of diseases in food and crop production for centuries. What's happened more recently, or at least we've become to realise this more recently, is that these pathogens have moved from and into other environments, such as your native forests. So here we have this unknown organism which has a deadly impact, killing kauri trees. And why, as a plant pathologist, we're concerned is that it's it's going for all life stages of the kauri. It's going for the seedlings, the saplings, the juveniles, the rickers, which are the successional forest trees coming back from clearance, So, i.e. your teenagers, if you want to, an analogy, and also the old trophy or tanga trees, which are the giants, so we are watching all of those life stages of Cody succumb to the disease. And the speed or the virulence of the pathogen is alarming because a sapling can be killed in a matter of weeks. And f- to be killed in years for a kauri is, um, is rapid for a species that can live, as we know some of the giants in Northland, over a thousand years. So for a tree like that to be gone in years is alarming.
2: The Kauri Dieback Programme is a joint agency response that involves the Ministry of Primary Industries, Department of Conservation, Auckland Council, Northland, Waikato and Bay of Plenty Regional Councils and Tangata Whenua. Its main message to the public is to protect kauri by cleaning gear and staying on tracks in the forest, as I discover when I head to Mangaroa Track above Piha and the Waitakere Ranges to meet University of Auckland ecologists Bruce Burns and George Perry. So what's the process here, Bruce?
6: We're um, spraying our boots with trigene, which is a type of disinfectant known to kill the um, the Phytophthora ua spores. And so the um, Auckland Council have set up these stations on the beginnings of tracks all through the Waitakere Ranges to try and get the public to prevent the, the movement of these spores around the landscape. It's a, it's a soil borne uh, organism, so uh, um, soil adheres to boots. So uh, we're trying to prevent people walking along tracks um, taking the spores with them.
2: My turn. It's one shoe done. And the second one.
0: So we're in a particularly dry summer in Auckland, so the trees are under some water stress, especially growing on these bare soil ridges. So this tree has got got a few leaves left, but its top, which is about eight metres up, has fallen off. And the reason I suspect this one has got the PTA is because around the base to a height of perhaps 40 centimetres, it's covered in very thick oozy sap, which is diagnostic. And so although it's just alive, I'd say it's closer to dead than alive. In the big trees, you know, the metre diameter trees, you get a huge
6: outpouring of gum all around the base, and it sort of gradually circles the tree. And once it's circled around the entire circumference, that's when the tree starts to die. So this is a about a 25 centimetre diameter tree, which is Just got a few leaves left on the top branches, and uh, the rest of the trunk is bare, and I don't think it's got very long to go, unfortunately, so um, it's on its way out. And again, it's got that gummosis at the the base.
2: Oh, there's heaps of dead ones there.
0: At least half the trees are affected and dead or dying.
2: And they're all quite small.
0: Yeah, so this this is pretty classic, what we expect in what we call a stand. so... After disturbance, these very dense pole stands or ricker stands form and they are thinning out over time under competition. Um, Much of the landscape in the Waitakarees is covered in pole stands. After after logging about 100 years ago. But to our knowledge, trees of all sizes can be affected. So the very largest through to the So yeah, there's much more uh, mortality here than you'd expect from just self-thinning. But that's a challenge for us because the trees are under strong competition so they're going to be dying anyway. So we've got to try and tease out the disease from the natural stand dynamics.
2: The official Cody dieback programme began in October 2009, a year and a half after PTA was identified as a new disease. It received funding for five years of research and management, and as Nick Wiper explains, the Colin McCann House Trust were important early partners.
3: Chris and McCann Trust in particular have really helped with the research because when we started sampling here taking soil samples our detectability our detection rate was absolutely quite low so we knew that there was a problem here but we couldn't detect this phytophthora in the soil and it really was quite frustrating wasn't it chris
4: yeah yeah it was incredibly frustrating because the samples would come back and there'd be nothing but we could see the disease on the
3: outside of the trees. Yes, so the trust really giving us that access to the the site as a research site was actually invaluable. Um, It was one of the key sites that led to the labs and us working harder to get the detection rate better.
2: While it's obvious when dying kauri trees are infected with PTA, when I visit Stanley Belgard in the lab at Landcare Research, I find out just how difficult it is to detect PTA in the soil and during the early stages of infection.
1: PTA, Phytophthora taxon agathis, is a soil-borne pathogen, soil-borne root pathogen, in fact. Therefore, our area of interest, our area of um, exploration is in the root zone, sitting under the drip line. Off the tree, so basically we're looking at that area under the trunk of a tree, about two to three metres out from the base of the tree. And we have a couple of consultants up in Northland and here in Auckland who have been providing us with soil samples taken from the top 15 centimetres of soil. These samples are taken, uh, chilled to ensure that there's a cool chain, and then basically they're stored here at Landcare.
2: So you've got a number of pottles in front of you with soil samples from different places?
1: Soil samples from within the Cowrie estate. Our first stage is to measure out about 150 grams of soil um, and then we un- uh, we allow it to undergo two days of drying. What we're trying to do is elicit out from the potentially infected root fragments the the pathogen. The pathogen has a number of uh, life stages. and um, The one that we think is particularly associated with diseased roots is a um, sexually produced resting structure known as an oagonium or the actual spore that the resting phase of the spore is called an oospore. Our challenge is to try to wake them up um, so that we can detect their presence by an indirect assay. What we do basically is we dry the soil for two days then we moist incubate them which is what we're sort of looking at here. The fascinating thing about this organism is that it's not a fungus. It's actually a relative of the blue-green algae, and it may even have a marine origin. And so it needs free water to sporulate its uh, asexual phase. And this, um, by uh, drying it and then adding water, we hope to germinate the resting structures into another life form, which is called the sporangium. The sporangium uh, contains... A series of motile, waterborne spores, which which have a fl- which have two flagella, so and can swim around. And indeed, we put uh, bait tissues, which are lupin radicals or cedar needles, on the top of the water, and basically hoping that these baits, which release uh, plant juices or extracts, will attract these uh, chemotactic zoospores to the bait.
2: So it's almost like you you have to fish for them using yes. bait.
1: There's no, there is no direct assay. It's the, the challenging thing about this devastating pathogen is that it has such a major, large-scale impact, yet when it comes to detection, it cannot be visualised by the human eye. In fact, we're looking at almost 10 spores per the top of a pinhead, so the, our objective is not only uh, a robust detection system, but can we detect it early, preemptively, um, so that some sort of intervention can be put into place.
2: So how does PTA infect and kill kauri trees?
1: How this organism
3: works is once it's in the soil and infected the roots, it then travels up the root system rotting it. So as well as a collar rot, it's a root rot. It's an aggressive root pathogen. So for some of the younger trees, they don't bleed around the trunks. They actually are killed within the root zone. So it it kills the roots, but as it does so, it moves up the root system to the trunk, and then it starts to infect the cambium tissue just behind the bark, which is the tissue that obviously takes all the sugars and carbohydrates up, up into the canopy. So it's, it's feeding on the feeding system of the tree. And as it infects and rots that tissue, um, the tree is trying to wall it off and stop it. A bit like human blood clotting, what the tree does is produce gum or the resin to try and wall off this pathogen. So the gum you see bleeding around the trunks are a response to the disease. And so that's one of the diagnostic features we look for is that bleeding resin around the base of the trunk. But we have found with the symptoms of kauri dieback it's not always the case. And that's been one of our challenges is what does it look like? And then um, in some situations it doesn't follow all the rules. So you have to take a soil test take some soil samples and take it and fish for it. (laughs) But um, once it's reached the trunk and is in behind the bark, it then moves around the base of the tree, uh, basically ring-barking it, girdling it. So once that tissue is killed, it doesn't come back. And um, the tree ability to feed itself starts to decline, so it can't get the sugary carbohydrates into the canopy to feed the canopy. Um, The canopy begins to starve, and so that's when you start to see the branches dying, the leaves turning yellow and brown and falling off. So it's a gradual thinning branch death until you're left with a dead skeleton of a tree.
2: Although kauri dieback disease has only got public recognition in the last few years, Bruce Burns from the University of Auckland explains it's actually been around for much longer than that.
6: I used to work in uh, Waipua Forest in the 1980s and 1990s, and people were, even then, uh, talking about dead kauri trees. Um, and we didn't associate that with a disease at that time. I mean, kauri, like any other organism, does die, so you expect there to be dead trees in the forest. But uh, gradually it became apparent that this was unusual, that there were more kauri dying than than uh, you would expect. And, but it wasn't really until Ross Beaver, the late Ross Beaver from Anki Research, um, did his work in this area actually. He, this was the area he first uh, became very concerned about, uh, about this carry dieback. But he identified it as as a disease and uh, made the first isolations of the organism. And having said that, he named it, but he then was able to link it back to a, a 1970s paper from Great Barrier Island where they had actually Um, identified a phytophthora, killing kauri, but um, gave it a different name. And Ross actually put it together in the mid-2000s, that this was actually a, a disease, a new organism, and that it was very specific to kauri.
2: There is currently no cure for trees infected with kauri dieback disease and no vaccination to prevent infection. But Ian Horner from Plant and Food Research is investigating a possible treatment.
4: The field trials we're doing at the moment, we're looking at uh, phosphite to see whether it can have any remedial effect against um, PTA in infected trees. So what we're trying is, is treating trees, um, leaving other trees untreated, um, and seeing if there's any difference after a period of years um, in the trees that have been treated and left untreated.
2: Can you tell me a bit more
4: about what phosphite is? So phosphite is a very simple chemical, phosphorous acid is its uh, common name. Phosphorus acid, not phosphoric acid, which uh, people quite often confuse the two. It's quite widely used in horticultural systems uh, where people have got phytophthora diseases. Avocados is a very good example where people control um, phytophthora rot of avocado uh, trees uh, using phosphite. So it is a fairly well-proven um, system. Uh, we just haven't tried it in Kauri Forest yet.
2: Thanks, everyone. That was part of a special feature on Kauri Dieback that you can find at rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. It was recorded in 2013, and for an update on what has happened since then, I catch up on Skype with Nick Wiperer, who is now at Plant and
3: Food Research. Well, I'm still working amongst both healthy and unfortunately disease Cody. So, Cody dieback still an ever present pestilence in our Nahiri or our forest. So, there's a lot of research underway to try and um, get some good solutions for the future of Cody. But in the meantime, we've also had another plant pathogen arrive in our Terau myrtle rust. So, there's two pathogens impacting our, our nahiru or our forest, although that pathogen doesn't affect kauri, thank goodness.
2: Just as a by-the-by, are you seeing any myrtle rust out in West Auckland?
3: Yes, unfortunately this season has been really good for the rust. It's been warm and wet and that's what it likes.
2: But it's impacting just mostly lofa myrtle still?
3: Yes, ramarama, rama, although this season it's expressing itself a lot more on putukawa and some of the Aka or Rata vines, so there's been other plants that are showing infection.
2: Now back in twenty thirteen when we first met, we met at Colin McCann House in Titarangi, which had just cut down a couple of their trees. I think you went there this weekend. Can you tell me how things are looking out there?
3: Well, unfortunately, some of the trees have continued to succumb to the disease, although there is a treatment called phosphide or phosphorus acid, which has been developed by Plant Food. And some of the trees have been treated, but like any treatment, it's not 100% and it isn't a cure, it's just the treatment. And some of the trees were already probably too far gone or the infection had taken a really strong hold on the trees. So trees on the site have continued to die, unfortunately. And, of course, we've had a dry year of drought, so you've got the pressure of drought and the disease rotting out the roots, so it's a double whammy for the poor Cody. Of note, though, the Khan House and the Cody Project, as well as Auckland Botanic Gardens, have actually, with Takawera Amahi, the local iwi blessing, taken seed from the trees on the property and have propagated the babies, or there's so there's little seedlings and saplings now alive from the trees on Khan's house and site, so at least the progeny or the children of that kauri stand are alive and well.
2: It's all very well to keep these little seedlings in a nursery. Can we imagine when we might actually be able to plant them back in the forest and go, there you go,
3: you're safe? No, we can't at the moment. So the whole protection around Cody is very much still around protecting the healthy and making sure biosecurity measures are in place, so the clean in and clean out is so, you know, soil borne. So those messages are really key. But also we've had areas, for example, in a lot of the parks or public reserves, both managed by the Department of Conservation and councils and other entities like Forest and Bird, have actually closed certain tracks, or upgraded them, or restricted um, access as a management means to stop um, the disease being spread further and or being introduced into healthy stands. In the Waitakere, the closure of an entire regional park, which had a million visitors per year, was a huge uh, management. Um, Program that really, I guess, was a circuit breaker for Kauri dieback management in one of the most heavily infected forests that we knew of. And of course, it was led by Ranga Chiratanga, Takawarawa Mahi, the iwi, who placed the Rahui on the uh, Nahiri or the forest. And that was a circuit breaker. It has led to Vastly improved track management, new tracks, new ways of and safe ways of accessing the forest. So I think that is really hopeful because it shows yes, you can still enjoy the Cody forest, but you can do it safely when you have safe track management. So I think that was a really critical um, change and change of thinking about how we recreate, how we walk, how we enjoy Cody but also recognising we have to do it responsibly. And that took investment in dry, clean tracks.
2: You sent me a, a link suggesting that someone had been successfully prosecuted too for actually breaking the, the rules around access to the Cody
3: area. When we last spoke, it was a very much pleading, I guess, with people who enjoy to to be biosecure, to be clean and clean and clean out. But... I guess, like with every carrot, you need a stick. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are some people that just did not listen or repeatedly decided to um, break the rules that Cody managers and agencies and ewe were putting in place for the protection of cody and now, with that prosecution, it shows that we 're serious about it. If you are going to be reckless in the way you visit some of our treasure parts of the forest. Well, there are consequences and we like to educate and we like to bring people with us on this journey. But at the end of the day, if there's going to be people that, you know, deliberately contribute to the spread of back, then I guess there has to be consequence to that. Unfortunately, once a soil borne pathogen is in the soil profile, it's very hard to remove As I said, back in 2013, the horse has bolted. This pathogen has been out and about for decades. So we were catching up. The treatment of phosphat is, is again, buying time. Hopefully these infected trees that do respond to the treatment and Cody Rescue, which is a community-based program, which is around landowners and community groups treating their own trees, holding the line... Until such time as we maybe have a more long lasting cure, even possibly. So, the research program is very much looking at other solutions as well as improving the phosphite program.
2: What kind of solutions are they considering?
3: There's Rongo Māori approaches, so um, using Māori knowledge around traditional forms of, I guess, what you'd say medicinal or biological. Matauranga to protect the trees. There's also biological control which is using natural enemies of phytophthora. So we do know from horticulture and agriculture that phytophthora itself has its own natural enemies and there's worked with beneficial fungi, bacteria and and other organisms that can tackle the pathogen. So nature fighting nature, so biocontrol, there's a lot of optimism there. And still, elusively, but we are still searching for the resistance or the genetic tolerance. I guess the internal mechanism of kodi itself, as a species, to resist the infection. So that work that Mahi that was began at Sion down on Rotorua on the Healthy Trees, Healthy Future program is looking at the kodi genetics itself to see if there are resistant trees or resistant populations among, amongst the kodi forests in Aotearoa New Zealand. So that so far has not found any, but obviously we're not through that programme yet. And that's some of the mahi or the work of Nara Rākau Takitaki, which is the new research programme that is investigating a number of tools and techniques and genetics to see if we can stop Cody dieback through a whole package. It's a bit like any pest management program. There's not ever going to be a silver bullet. So there's not going to be a one solution. There's going to be a number of solutions, and various solutions will suit various ecosystems or various parts of the country. And So you'll need a, what we call a toolbox, and I guess people... Who listen and think about pest management and conservation will hear that a lot about the toolbox to save our tongue or save our natural environment. So there's there's going to be a suite of tools, and that's what's underway now.
2: So Cody divides endemic in Auckland, West Auckland. It's endemic pretty much through the Northland Cody forest. Now, is there anywhere that's free? For a while, I think there was suggestions that Coromandel and Hunua were freer. Is that?
3: still the case? Yes well today we say undetected or healthy so so far the Hanua Ranges it's still not been detected there and the forest is showing so far no symptoms. The last surveillance showed that. Um, parts of the Coromandel, the Kaimais it's still not been detected either. There are some kodi on private land and a small reserve and managed by the Department of Conservation in the Coromandel that has been detected. But it's still not everywhere as far as we can tell in terms of what we've been doing in terms of surveillance. So there's still hope and there's still many healthy kauri and many healthy stands where the disease and the symptoms have not been seen, confirmed, and so it's not all over yet. And I think that's the important thing. While we have healthy trees while we have healthy forests, we have a chance.
2: Thanks, Nick. Nick Wiperer is a plant disease expert at plant and food research. I'm Alison Balance, and this Hour Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 29th of April 2021. It featured a feature from the very extensive Hour Changing World audio archive. You can find said archive and listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash World. The website is also where you can sign up for our free email newsletter, and if you click the podcast tab at the top of the page, you'll find all of RNZ's podcasts and video series. Enjoy. Coming up soon is a four-part podcast series called Fight for the Wild. It focuses on predator-free 2050 and the battle to get New Zealand rid of more invasive pests, rats, possums and stoats. Why not follow now so the podcasts will appear on your mobile device as soon as they are released. You might also like the new series of Black Sheep. Follow us on your favourite podcast app and follow us also on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Kia pai to